0: class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We have been studying the lessons presented to the young preacher Timothy by the Apostle Paul in the short New Testament book, To Timothy. We are seeing what his meaning was to be to the people he talked to and the way he responded to the information that was being taught. And this lesson, taken from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 to 19 gives us the information for the diligent workmen. The Believer's Bible class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We enjoy our fellowship together and look forward to meeting those who visit our class. Well, Doug is at the podium, ready to begin, so let's get our Bible and open it to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady.
1: You pastor over the most important New Testament church there is, Ephesus. And so as he goes through chapter 2, he is giving him comparisons or word pictures. This is how you should live. This is how you should be. And we've seen a a number of those. And right now, in the passages we just looked at the last time, uh, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we started in with this picture of the faithful workman. The faithful workman. And we're going to continue that motif today as we look at this. You remember last week, Paul indicated that this workman doesn't wrangle about words. And he diligently studies God's word so that he'll not bring shame to his master. And as a result, he becomes well-trained in the use of scriptures. Now, how many of you know, as a young boy growing up, what was one of my favorite heroes on television? Zorro. (laughs) Zorro. I loved Zorro the fox. Now, they've remade some of the movies, and I don't know if you've seen uh, the two most recent Zorro movies. Uh, <laughs> the actors and actresses I'm not very proud of, but it is really very interesting. Zorro in the second one is an old man, and he's teaching his replacement. And this guy is, whose replacement is very passionate, but many times passion tends to bring about stupidity, and he has to be shown that he has to spend time training and learning how to be the swordsman. And during this movie, uh, he will get mad, and he will start to fight the master. One of the times uh, the master fights him, sword fights him, where he the, the young guy has a sword, and the master has a fork, and yet he still beats him. Another time, he has a cane and still beats him. And he that demonstrates to him that you need to acquire the skills that you need. Now, I didn't know it as a boy, but I know it now as a man that we, and I'm including both genders, are to be swordsmen. What is our sword? The Word of God. Now, some people say, now, wait a second, you're saying that And it's maybe because you like sword play, and you like that kind of thing, and you liked it growing up. Well, if you look at Hebrews chapter 4, 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and uh, piercing as far as the division of soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of a man's heart. It's not the only place it appears. If you were to read in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, it says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, a well-trained and master swordsman, the sword becomes an extension of his arm. And they move together. And unlike a normal sword, what did it say about this sword in Hebrews 4.12? two-edged. Yep. But what else did it say about it? It's alive. It's alive. In other words, you have to understand this. In a normal sword situation, the man is directing the sword. In this situation, the sword is directing the man. We need to practice and get skilled at the use of this. And this is something Paul is going to repeat over and over and over to Timothy. So we're going to start now in verse 16, but before we do, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we can spend together. I thank you for the time you've given me studying this passage. I pray that you'll help me to faithfully and consistently share what you have shown me to say what you want said. Help me not to try and be cute or to be too political, but instead to focus on your word and the message that is there and what you want us to see. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. 2 Timothy 2.16 starts this way. But avoid worldly chatter worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Now, you remember, we have just passed through chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and I want you to see that this verse now is really in connection with them. In verse 14, it says, Remind them of these things, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God, not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. We talked about that at length last Sunday. Now it appears he's coming back again to say the same thing to us, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. I want you to notice first this contrasting conjunction, but. It's always, I found, important to look at those conjunctions, especially when God follows the word but. But there's a point of contrast with two things set out in verse 15, where it says, you should be expounding soundly and accurately the word of God. But avoid this so that you can accomplish what I told you in verse 15. What did he say in verse 15? Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling or rightly dividing the word of truth. So, but... In order to do that, you need to listen to this. What I am saying to you is is what is coming about here. What the Lord wants us to see. The second thing I want you to see as we look at this word beside but, we're going to go down to this, it will lead to further. It is a pronoun, neuter pronoun. What is the antecedent of that pronoun it? It will lead to further worldly and empty chatter. Now, that is what we're to avoid, and it will lead to further. We want to see carefully what God is trying to say to us here. So, first, avoid. What does the word avoid mean? Let me give you a word picture of that. Let's say there is a young lady Uh, who works in a large company, and there's one particular male worker who has been trying to show her affection that she doesn't want. And he's becoming very persistent, and he's becoming a pest, shall we say, for lack of a better word. And there's a company party. She walks in, she sees him, She turns around and walks out and leaves. She doesn't want to be there with him. That's the kind of word we're talking about. Avoid, shun, stay away from, don't have anything to do with. Avoid these things. Now, how many words do you think in this next phrase, worldly and empty chatter? How many words do you think that will be? Okay, I'm talking about Greek. (laughs) Six. You see the and... It's not really there. It's implied in Greek. There's not a specific word for and that's why it's in italics. So now how many words do you think in Greek? Most people think three. Only two. Let's look at worldly first. It appears there's two adjectives and then one noun, but no. There's two words. Worldly is babelos, and babelos has three kinds of meanings. Profane, unhallowed, and coarse. Now let's look for just a second. Profane. What does that mean? That means basically a cursing type situation. Profane. That's what profanity is. Okay? Stay away from any chatter that contains profanity. Number two, unhallowed. Now I use a lexicon Greek lexicon that tends to be centered on language from King James Version. Unhallowed is really just unholy. Any chatter that's unholy, avoid it, number two. Number three, in that anything that is coarse, now what would it mean, coarse? Crude, talking about subjects that shouldn't be talked about in public. It may not be profanity, but we, we don't talk about that. It's inappropriate. And so that's his saying first, that's this worldly because that's the way the world talks. You know, if you flip through late night TV and you come across a comedy presentation, they can't have comedy without filth. And it, it just seems that, that that's the way the world is. Next, the word empty chatter is one word and it's kinophonia. And kinophonia, really, the meaning is discussion of vain and useless matters. But there's something I think important in this meaning. The original type meaning had the idea of empty discussion. Kinophobia is two words, empty and discussion. Why is it important to recognize that? It's because of the Greeks' understanding of how the human persona worked. It's, their idea was, You cannot have, or there is no vacuum in the human soul. If you take something out, something will replace it. It'll never be left empty. And if you take good out, evil will replace it. And that's the connotation this word is, where you've taken the good out of the discussion, and so there's nothing left there but evil to fill it up. And the Greeks understood that, And writers in the New Testament understood that too. Now, as we look at this, there's a progression we need to see. He's saying, I want you to study God's word. I want you to be skilled at it. And in order to do that, you need to avoid this type of conversation or discussion, worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. What is it saying? Have you ever seen something in a drain where it starts out wide and it's going around and it gets, as it gets towards the center, the circles are smaller and the speed is faster. That's what this concept is. This kind of talk, now wait, you're talking about talk can do this? Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. This kind of talk is progressive in ungodliness. And it leads to more and more and more. Deeper, faster, farther down. That's where it's going. How do you avoid that? The Scripture. If your mind's being filled with the Scripture, it pushes the evil out. You take the Scripture out, the evil pulls back in. And we need to see that. But it doesn't stop there. Now he's going to explain something even more with this ungodliness. Starting in verse 17, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they have upset the faith of some. Now, the first thing we ought to notice here, this is right in here is a bad verse. You know, when the Greek New Testament was written, when this letter was written, there weren't verses that was added later. This first part of verse 17 should be in verse 16. It's part of that sentence. Therefore, we don't need verse 18. It cuts the sentence in two also. So verse 16 should end after gangrene. Verse 17 should start in verse before the word among and then finish at the upset of faith of some. But be that as it may, I want you to see the words are there and we need to see them. Their talk will spread like gangrene. This is the word logos, and we should understand it's their speech. It's talking about the worldly and empty chatter. And it's going to spread like gangrene. Now, some translations will use the word canker instead of gangrene. Some will use the word cancer instead of gangrene. I, I do want you to see this word gangrene, I think that's the better translation because if you look at it in the Greek, it's gangrena. Gangrena. Uh, what is gangrene? What, what, what is it? It kills, the, it kills the skin. It kills the tissue. Many times, if gangrene is starting to spread, how do you stop it, Julie? Amputate. amputate. Do we want to have to amputate part of the church, no. then don't let it start because it will spread. This word translated here, will spread, is a word that's, that's taken a little bit of a journey. It started out meaning pasture or grazing place, and then it kind of had the idea that it came in figuratively. You ever heard the English phrase, look at this spread? I could either be talking about a ranch or I could be talking about a table with food on it. Okay, we usually think of the table with food, but I grew up when I spent a little time on a ranch, they'd call it the spread. And you could see that pasture and all this beautiful land. And then it started taking the idea from spreading to something that would move across like a disease, or a crowd would spread out, or something filling an unfilled area. And that's what this gangrene will do. It will move around, and it will start killing. It's interesting, the, the skin in gangrene is going to turn a greenish-black color as it's dying. Can you imagine this happening to the church? Now, I want you to see this because this is very important. The main reason for gangrene is the f- stopping of the flow of good or healthy blood. Okay, either no blood or infected blood. Now, what's going to cause a spread like that? What flow is going to have to be stopped in the church for that kind of gangrene to happen? I think it's the flow of the Holy Spirit. And what is one of the primary, the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit? To teach us the Word of God, the Scripture, and then to empower and control us. When you stop the spread of the Holy Spirit in the church, it starts to die. And the apostasy that comes from that death sometimes has to be amputated. So this is a very serious matter he's talking about. And it's obviously very serious because what Paul is going to say, I'm going to give you an example, and he's calling out names. Hymenaeus and Philetus. Here's this book. It comes to Timothy. He reads it and studies it. And then he gets up and he reads this letter to the church. Imagine a church this size. And and right back there is sitting Hymenaeus. And he may leave the church as a result uh, of the shame and embarrassment. But he's in the Ephesian community. And he meets some guy. Hymenaeus? Are you the guy Paul wrote about? But Paul was serious. Especially about this guy, uh, Hymenaeus. And I want you to see it. Now this is the second time... In this book that he's mentioned, uh, people who are reticle, people who we should be careful of. Listen to this part. In 1 Timothy, he spoke about another two. I command, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made to you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, not Philetus this time, but Hymenaeus, whom I have handed over to Satan so that he will be taught not to blaspheme. Now, I'm not sure what it means to be handed over to Satan, but I do know two women. One of them is my wife, another one is my friend Vera, who many times pray in such a way, usually, well, I've heard both of them pray this way about Nancy Pelosi. Uh, She's not their friend. And if you you begin to see where I'm going here, about handed over to Satan, uh, they pray very seriously. And I would not want to be the subject of a Nancy Pelosi prayer by either of those two women. Now, there's one question that I want you to see. And I think it's important here because this always comes up. Here they pointed out these guys. In fact, I just pointed out someone who I think is uh, not on the side of godliness. Should we, as teachers or pastors or preachers or speakers, point out people by name? I want you to think about something. I'm going to give you an example. Some of you maybe can remember back in 1982, there was a problem with a product that almost everybody knew, and the FDIC spoke out. And pardon me, the Food and Drug Administration spoke out. It was a over-the-counter pain analgesic, and people were taking it and died because of some things in that analgesic that were not supposed to be there. Now, if the FDA had just come out and said, "There's a over-the-counter analgesics you need to stay away from them because they're killing people," we'd well, be sitting there. What are we talking about? Buffering, Excedrin, leave, Tylenol, what? But they didn't do that because that's not what we need to know. They said, don't take Tylenol. It'll kill you, possibly. And we're not talking about over a long period of time. We're talking about one or two doses. And you can see there's still videos where they're taking all that off, the, all the Tylenol off the shelves because it had gotten something in it in the batches, and they didn't know for sure where those batches were. And because of that, quick action by the FDA. But the fact is that you have to get the information to know how to protect yourself, right? Now, there was a time when we changed that, the example is, where we didn't, weren't given the information. Between 2008 and 2016, there were a number of Terrorist attacks on people in our nations. Some of most of you probably remember those. If there's gonna be a terrorist attack and a war, wouldn't you want to know who is attacking you? But for some reason we were never told. Do you remember that? We didn't we're never told who the enemy was. You have to know who the enemy is to be able to successfully fight them. Otherwise, you don't know who you're fighting. Paul comes out here and says, these are the men. You have to be careful. Don't listen to them. Now, let me tell you what Paul's position is. A teacher, a preacher, a pastor, a speaker, an evangelist, a prophet must do both. What do you mean both? Listen to Colossians 1.28. Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect to Christ Jesus. What are we supposed to do? Warn and teach. Teach and warn. Teach is more a positive thing. Warn is more a negative thing. We have to do that. Paul says to do it. Now, some people say, yes, but that's the apostle Paul. He was an apostle. He had, you know, all these gifts of the Spirit. You're not Paul, Brady. You that doesn't mean you get to do it. Just Paul does. Well, What does Paul teach in this book? All over, if you look in 1 Corinthians 1 11, it says, you need to imitate me. He puts himself as an example. Early in this chapter, did he not put himself up? Timothy, do the same thing I'm doing. Follow my example. He did. That's what he wants He believes in public scolding. Don't you remember what he did with Peter? When Peter started being uh, a hypocrite, he confronted him face to face, said, what are you doing? You mean you confront the apostle Peter? One of the three inner circle? Yes, if it's necessary, and he's doing what's wrong and causing gangrene to spread through God's bride. And so he is coming out And saying this, what do we know about these guys? Well, they were leaders in teaching heretical concepts in the Ephesian district. And as such, they were misleading those who were members of the Ephesian church and also potential converts. And they were causing many to question their faith. Now, they were even claiming that the resurrection had already occurred. Now, when I first read that, I thought, how stupid is that? Who would ever believe them that the resurrection had ever occurred? Now, of course, I'm living in a time where there's worldwide media, and you know everything that happens. They don't have anything like that in Paul's day. But still, the resurrection has already occurred? That means I got left behind, doesn't it? I mean, how stupid is that? If Paul and Timothy are here, they certainly, if there was a resurrection, would be gone. But they're still here. How could anybody believe that? I say that or thought that because I had forgotten how insidious Satan is. Are there people who teach that today? Let's talk about that just a second. I'm going to talk first about amillennialism. Amillennialism. Have you ever heard that? Well, let me try and explain it to you. Amillennialism is one of several views of the end times regarding the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. Each of these views differs in placement or timing of this 1,000-year reign that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. The amillennialist view was founded in the school of doctrine that came out of Alexandria, Egypt, one of Julie's favorite places. I say that tongue-in-cheek. And the religious school founded by Augustine who maybe did more to hurt the church than help the church. An amillennialist sees the thousand years as spiritual and non-literal, as opposed to a physical understanding of history. This uh, prefix of A typically means a negation of the word, but the amill position is that the millennium has already been realized. It's already happened. We're in the millennium now. You read your Bible and you say, how can that possibly be? Look at what's going on. You would think the people who started having this view after the thousand years from when the church started to a thousand years later, the thousand year time turbo turned over. Well, this can't be the millennium. Either. Oh, no. Thousand years didn't mean really a thousand years. It just that was their way of talking. It was a long time. And do people still believe this today? Absolutely. Well, what do you mean resurrected? You were resurrected in your hearts when you received Jesus. That's when you went from spiritual death to spiritual life, and you were resurrected then. There's not just one resurrection. There's millions of them as different people. Each person comes to know Jesus personally and and start a relationship with him. So what is going on here, they say. You see, you need to understand that. People believe that heresy. Paul says, no. Mark. I'm sure, I'm glad we're in the millennials since Satan is bound. Yeah. Well, only, only through somebody like Julian Vera's prayers, you see. Otherwise, if we're not praying, he's not. You have to understand this. It's not that literal. Mark, you're just too much of a literalist. And again, for the recording, I'm saying that tongue in cheek. Well, did you know that there's also another view on that called post millennialism? Do you know that we used to have a pastor here at our church who believed, who was a post millennialist? Now, most of you can't remember him. His name is Truett. Truett, Dr. Truett. Why do you think that Baylor University named their seminary after him? Now, I'm really going to get myself in trouble. Post-millennialism is an interpolation of Revelation chapter 20 that sees Christ's second coming as occurring after the millennium. Not before, but after. The millennium, a golden age or era of Christian prosperity and dominance. The term includes several similar views of the end times and it stands in contrast to the no-millennium view of the amillennialists, a postmillennialism is the belief that Christ returns after a period, not necessarily literally a thousand years, and those who hold this view do not interpret unfulfilled prophecy as normal literal method. They just believe a thousand years means a long time. Now those who hold to this postmillennialism view believe that this world will become better and better. You see, if you've been noticing that, that eventually it will become completely Christianized. Let me ask you something. Is Christianity the fastest growing religion in the world? What is? Islam. Islam. Of course, they convert by the sword, so that makes it a little easier. But after this happens, so who is in charge of bringing in and establishing the kingdom? Not the king, but the subjects. Now, is that the way you establish a kingdom? No. No. We are not to be. What did Jesus tell Pilate? If I was that kind of king, my subjects would be fighting for me. But I'm not. This is a spiritual kingdom which I will bring in one day. Now, when he does, we're going to get to come with him. But we couldn't do it without him. And we can't. And we need to understand that. Now, there is a view of these Positions that I hold to, which is called a premillennialist view, premillennialism. You notice my tongue says that real easily. A premillennial view is that Christ's second coming will occur prior to the millennial kingdom, and that the millennial kingdom is a thousand years, a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. In order to understand and interpret the passages uh, of Scripture, To deal with end times, there are two things which must be clearly understood. A proper method of interpreting the scripture and the distinction between Israel and the Jews. And we need to come to understand that. One of the things that people have a difficulty understanding, for example, is when we talk about end days, latter times, it doesn't interpret right. What, What do you mean it doesn't interpret right? Well if you're talking about the end of something don't you need to know what the something is? Right? Can you talk about the end of something if you don't know what the something is? So when it talks about the end times, is it talking about the end times of the earth? Is it talking about the end times of Israel? Is it talking about the end times of the church age? Most of the time it is talking about the end times of Israel. Rarely but we're going to see in this book, it's going to talk about it in 2 Timothy, the end times of the church age. I mean, for example, one of the signs of the end times is the regathering of a rebellious Israel into the, na- the land of Israel. Is that a sign of the end of the church? Sign of the end of Israel. If it talks about computer chip technology that would allow a world, one world leader to mark every person in the world and keep track of them. Is that talking about the end times of the church or the end times of Israel? Israel? Israel. It's going to be during the tribulation in the middle of it. If it's talking just about one world government, is that talking about the end times of the church or the end times of Israel? Israel. If it's talking about the end times... And the apostasy that will occur. Is it talking about Israel or the church? Church. Apostasy doesn't happen in the world. Apostasy is a departure from known and understood truth. The world doesn't understand the truth. Who's supposed to understand the truth? The church. Christians. Christians. So the only thing apostasy could happen would be from the church. That's where it's happening in the church, where it's going to happen even worse than we see it today. Although how that can be, I don't know, but it's going to get a whole lot worse. And it's the church that's going to talk about, if it's talking about the end apostasy at the end times, it's talking about the church. So you've got to differentiate. That's why this type of understanding, and I've put some language in the notes there for you to see how we should be interpreting the scriptures and what some of the rules are and the keys to the context. But now let's look at some of the end times or the end part of this verse, this passage, and they upset the faith of some. Upset the faith of some. Now, number one, it's very important. In Greek, you hardly ever put a definite article. But if you do, that means that's something important. And here, the faith is important. You know, people make this mistake all the time. You have heard people say, who read Hebrews chapter 12. And as they read Hebrews chapter 12, it's a great passage it says, therefore, since we have such great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. No, it doesn't say the author and perfecter of the faith. Just the author and perfecter of faith. That's what it says, right? You would confirm that, Steve? Oh, yeah. Steve is a walking concordance, so uh, you can always go to him to, to find it out. So, the fact here that it has the faith, it's not talking about their necessarily faith towards God, but the truth that the Christian is supposed to believe. Now, it uses this word upset. I don't like that translation at all. Why? I guess maybe it's the way we word things or we think things. You know, now I'm going to really get myself in trouble. You ever. Known a female who says, "Oh, I'm upset," and why are you upset? Well, my dog didn't eat his food this morning, or uh, uh, this person didn't call me today. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? Sometimes it's it's kind of a minor thing that causes upset. This is not minor. This is major. This word here translated upset, is anatripo. It means to overthrow, to overturn, or to destroy. Now to me, that's not upset, destroy. That, that's a little more serious than being upset. You know, if Julie's upset with me, we'll eventually get over it. But if our marriage is destroyed, where do you, how do you come back from that? That's really serious. That's something we can't have. It's got to be avoided at all costs because God put us together. And so there's a difference between those words. And to say it's upset their faith, no. Now, the second meaning of entrepo is to subvert, subvert. What does that word subvert mean? It means to undermine the power and authority of. There's some people that say that there's someone we might be very close to who has worked to subvert certain parts of our Republican government. I didn't say that. I just said some people would say that. I want to make that clear. And How close he is, I don't know. But the fact is to destroy the authority of and the power of. So they are doing this. Hymenaeus and Philetus, preaching these wrong things, teaching these wrong things, especially about the rapture and not a little interpretation of the Scriptures to destroy the faith of believers. Now, let me show you how Paul views this. He talked about this using the same words. In Titus 1, verses 10 and 11, he says... For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. What does that mean, of the circumcision? Jews. Jews. Who must be silenced. Now, that's pretty strong, is it not? Must be silenced. Because they are upsetting, not upsetting, destroying, overthrowing, subverting families, teaching they should not things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of the things they're doing is trying to destroy the power of the family and the authority of the family. Do you see that? I don't know if you heard that, but they're trying to eliminate any vestige of people even who believe correctly in their schools. Look at a verse we already looked at, but I want to stress a certain part of it. It's in 1 Timothy 1.19. It's not the same word, but it's the same concept. Keeping faith and good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now, immediately after this verse, who does it mention? Hymenaeus. This is what he's doing. He's causing shipwreck. That is destruction, overflow, subversion to the faith of those. And we need to see the importance of this. You know, if I go into a jury trial... And I know that I can prove that the other side lied about something at least once. One of the things I always ask the jury panel before we start, the law says that you're the sole judges of the credibility of the witnesses. That means you determine whether they can be believed or not. Is there anyone in here who's ever been lied to? And of course, everybody raised their hand. Then the second question I ask is, How many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? And they all say the same thing. Well, one, Now I've got them, you see? Because I'm going to show them they lied. The same concept is here, and, and we need to see it. If you let something in that infects part of your doctrinal stance, part of the truth of the scriptures it will spread just like gangrene we have to stop it the church has not been vigilant and we must become vigilant stand up and say that's not true the scripture says something different where do you get your truth the bible it's the sole so you know wait sole source yes sole source of truth it's the only message we have Well, you know, I was meditating the other day and I was asking God to show me and I just emptied my mind so that he would be free to put whatever thoughts he wanted to into my mind and he dropped these things. Well, what may be dropping in there, I'm not sure what it is, but it's not from God. Experience never trumps Scripture. Scripture always trumps any kind of communication. Now, let's move on to verse 19 before I just absolutely run out of time. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having his this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, first, I want you to notice this word, nevertheless. Nevertheless is a connection between the apostate movement of persons such as Hymenaeus and Philetus and their effect on the church of the living God. What, will they have some effect? Yes. But the foundation of the church will remain strong. That's a promise. If I were following the Bible study method of, of writing, I would put next to that phrase, promise. Because God promises. In other words, the church has an ideal integrity that is not affected by some who claim to be a part of it. In fact, there are some conservative scholars who, like Vincent, who says that the term firm is not to be viewed as a predicate in nature, but attributive in nature. What do I mean by that? It's not the foundation of firm. It's the stands. How it stands is firm. Stands firm, unshakable, impregnable. And how the foundation stands maybe is the most important to see. And that's a point that we ought to consider because we know we can rely on that foundation. The foundation stands immovable. Now next, Paul talks about having a seal. Now this is an interesting passage here, and you don't find this too many other places in the Scripture. But notice this word, nevertheless, the firm foundation stands having this seal. Who is being sealed? The believers are. Because what is the foundation? It's the foundation of the church, right? Okay. How are the believers sealed? This seems to indicate there's words on them. What are the words? One, the Lord knows those who are His. Yes. He's got His name on us. Is one day He going to put His name on your forehead? Yes. I'm going to say anything more about that. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. That's part of the seal too. It's what it says. Seems to me it may be an awfully long seal. But I think God reads fast. So I want you to see. More importantly, what I want you to see is this. God promises that he knows whether or not you belong to him. He knows that. And here's the important thing that us to see. Who is best able to see this seal on us. The spiritual world. Angelic beings. Satan, God, God's angels, Satan's angels, they can see it much more clearly. That's who's seeing this seal. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it makes me a target. It makes you a target, doesn't it? Does Satan want to go after people who aren't having that seal? He's already got them, but it also is a seal of promise. You are mine. Is there anything Satan can do to change that? I am his forever and ever because he has sealed me, and no one can undo that seal. But that seal comes with some responsibility. Abstain from wickedness. Now, does that mean we're supposed to be sinless? No, you can't be sinless, but it means you should sin less. We need to be about sinning less. And you know, I heard Chuck Swindoll one time say, how long do you think you could go without sinning? You know, he said, some woman came up to him and said, I, I, I think I went 30 days. <laughs> Under his breath, he said, well, I think it's already ended.
0: <laughs>
1: uh The problem is we may not know how long we can go because sometimes we don't even realize we're sinning because it's so natural to us, but it's something that we're to be about. And he's going to talk to Timothy about this as we go on. But I want you to come back now and understand the foundation before we finish. This foundation that is so important, this foundation that he talks about constantly, the Word of God, studying it diligently, being unashamed of the work that we've done and how well we've gotten. Who can remember Dr. Crystal's favorite verse? Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. And you see his picture when he's saying that he's holding the open Bible up with his right hand. This is our foundation. If you don't know what the Bible says, how can you remain firm? No, you're the kind who will get overthrown or subverted in the faith because you haven't built it into your life. You've got to allow the Holy Spirit to build it in your life. You've got to have a personal Bible study, a weekly Bible study, ingesting the Scripture, memorizing it. Yes? Isaiah 40, verse 8, is also repeated in 1 Peter 1, 21,
0: 25.
1: Well, that's a good point. I forgot that, Steve. What he said, if you didn't hear it, Isaiah 40 verse 8 is also repeated in First Peter verses 24 and 25. Now I want to look at one other thing. In this passage the last passage verse 19 that we just studied, the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. Well we think yeah, okay I understand that. I, understand. I want you to look at for a second at that word know. It's gnosko in the Greek. And what does it really mean? Does it just mean any kind of knowledge? No. It refers to an intimate, experiential knowledge. Now, I'm going to share something with you. Maybe I shouldn't share. But Debbie reminded me of something this morning. Do you know when the very first time I met Julie was? The first time I really was around Julie for any length of time. There was a time when I was married to someone else. And I had a law firm, and I had an associate, and we went to a Christmas dinner together. I said, we're going to go out to a nice place for Christmas dinner to celebrate what we've been doing in the firm and its intended growth. That associate wasn't married. You know he brought to that dinner? Julie Zawala. Now, if, when I first started spending time with Julie, she said, you know, we've met before. And I said, when? Well, when we went to Avila's that time, I was with Daryl. Not Avila's, excuse me. Avantes. And I didn't even remember her. Now, why would that be? Because somebody didn't want me to remember her. Because eventually, she was going to be my wife. At the time, I was married to someone else. But God, I just barely knew about her then. But now I have intimate experiential knowledge, Julie, and she does of me. I know what she likes. Uh, I know where I rank in relation to the dog. I know all those things. <laughs> I'm above him. I just wanted you to know that. That kind of knowledge is gained from a long-standing relationship. You say, well, what about me? I just got saved three weeks ago. I don't have a lot. Yes, you do. He knew you before you were ever born. He knew you before you were conceived. He wove you together in your mother's womb. No, He knows you. You may not have known Him that long, but He has known you. And the one that should... Knowing that should strive uh, cause us to strive for purity, and I think that's important and that 's why that was at the end of that passage uh, we need to strive for purity purity I don't mean this, I'm not talking about we need to view it this way, not the absence of sin, but the purity of relationship because if our relationship with the Lord is pure, we won't be sinning that's the thing yes. <laughs> Is those that don't seek God. definition of wickedness is those who don't seek God. That may very well be a good definition. I'll have to think it through. But we need to understand that this is what we want. He knows us. We need to know Him. How do we get to know Him? Spending time in His Word. We've got to do that. If you read David's Psalms, you would see this. If he wakes up in the middle of the night when he's supposed to be sleeping, what is the purpose of him being awake at that time? Meditate on God's word. That's what he says over and over and over. Meditate. Now, that involves prayer. It involves going over the word of God. you know, and this is a man who wrote God's word, but he had hit it. What did he say in one night in chapters of Psalm 119? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. That was the purpose. That's what we need to be about. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend today studying a workman. Help us to strive to be faithful men and women who learn your scriptures, become skilled at your scriptures, who don't participate in worldly and empty chatter, who don't allow people like Himeneas and Philetus to mislead us and point Him out to others and warn them what they can do to them if they don't understand God's truth and apply it to what these other people are saying. And so, Father, I pray that You keep us close to You, that we strive to grow our intimate, experiential relationship with You, and that we are willing... When you call to answer yes, I pray these things in the name of your Son Jesus and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.